0: So grateful that you're here this morning Um, and uh, there's a lot uh, that you could be doing. It's beautiful out there, Um, but you're here. Um, We're going to take our offering really quick. Um, So if you are uh, new to this room, new to this church, uh, you can allow that to just pass by a little bit. Um, And for those of you who are part of this church, we're just so grateful for your partnership in making things happen wanted to share with you a couple of things that are happening. Um, first of all, um, women's retreat is in less than two weeks. So if you haven't signed up yet, you're slacking, ladies. Um, there's uh, This is a, a really great, affordable uh, night away that you get a chance to connect with other women in our church and um, just have a great time uh, listening to our speaker and, and just conversating and, and having fun. laughing and being together. So I want to encourage you to sign up for that simple link on our website from the events page. Um, There's also something in town the next weekend called the IF Gathering, and that is actually here in Arvada. Um, So you don't have to go far for that. So encourage you to do that. Uh, Mandy will be here a little later today to help if you have any other questions. A couple other things happening. We are... Uh, fully engaging really with Arvada High School. And some of you know, last year we kind of jumped in as a help to in, this thing called the, the Arvada Sports Camp, which is a way for Arvada High to not only um, help change the narrative of what it looks like to go to school there, um, they're trying to encourage kids who are in elementary school and, 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 and middle school to come and do sports at Arvada High School, and, and Arvada High has uh, a reputation over the last number of years of not being a good school and being, so you don't want to send your kids there, uh, but the administration at Arvada High and the teachers at Arvada High are like, They're great, and they're trying to change the narrative of Arvada High School. And we can be a part of that by helping them put on the Arvada Sports Camp. It's a camp for kids all throughout the area, Seacrest Elementary, Swanson Elementary, Peck Elementary, a bunch of these uh, schools that feed into Arvada, and we're going to help them pull it off. And so if you're interested, if you like sports, if you like to um, coach and, and organize and all that kind of stuff, we're putting together a little bit of a... Let's just call it a team to make this happen, okay? So if you're interested in being a part of that, uh, let me know. Uh, you, can, you can jot it down on a connection card here. Um, and then if you're interested in volunteering for that down the road, great. But if you're interested in being a part of, like, making it happen, that's what I would love to know. So let me know if you'd like to be a part of that. Um, it's good stuff right there. Is that enough? Are you guys awake? Coffee's out there. It's out there. I mean, you can load up right now. Feel free to get up, get some coffee. We're gonna need more. I'm gonna need more than. Uh, I'm gonna need more. I'm gonna need more than that today. Okay. So, okay, we've been in a series, um, and we're starting actually the book of Daniel today. Okay. So, some of you are like, "bout flipping time," right? So, last two weeks we have been preparing. Okay. to to dive into this uh, pretty wild Old Testament story about four Jewish men who get carried off to captivity in Babylon. And at the same time, we've been doing this thing um, in in the life of our church. We've been reading through um, the Immerse book on Chronicles, um, and it's Chronicles and Ezra and a few other, and Daniel. And um, if you've been diving into that, uh, great. If you, if you haven't started yet and you want to do it, you can still jump into a group. We would still let you come. Um, I mean, for a, a nominal fee, but we would still let you show up. So uh, if you want to do that. Um, and then just a, another thing just ahead as we get into this series a little bit more, the Sunday after Super Bowl is House Church Sunday. And that's where we split up in four different homes and do church like the early church did, in homes. And so this is a way for us to uh, practice some of this together. Um, So you're gonna be invited to a house um, in the next few days. And if you don't get invited to a house, um, I mean, there's Gryffindor, and then there's, I'm I'm just kidding. If you don't get invited to a house um, and you feel left out, Okay, we would love to uh, make sure that you don't get left out. If you, if you know today, we don't have your information um, and you wanna be a part of House Church Sunday, you just gotta give us your information. We will put you in a house, so enough of that. Daniel chapter one, um, we've been in this um, series and we've been making the point over the last two weeks that the ground underneath our feet is changing that the culture in which we live, that the, um, the, the feeling of our culture has changed into something called a post-Christian culture. Pre-Christian culture would be something like Stonehenge or um, before the gospel gets to a place in the world um, and, and, and and there's just different... Um, ideas about worship and things like that. Post Christian world is actually a rejection of the Christian idea of who God is. We live in that world now. And we've been using the metaphor of exile to help us understand what that's like. What is it like to live as a minority culture? where the dominant values of the culture you're living in are actually alien to following Jesus. What does that look like? And last week we talked about two different postures that we really wanna avoid. We wanna avoid separatism. So that idea of like starting a commune in the middle of nowhere and um, totally shutting ourselves off from society and uh, we also want to avoid something that's actually even harder to avoid is syncretism, where after a while we just begin to blend in with culture around us, and there's no distinction. We act the same, we live the same, we spend the same, we dream the same, except for we just go to church on Sunday, maybe once in a while. So I'm arguing for a better way forward, and one of, the, one of the words we're using, the phrases we're using is something called being a creative minority. If we're a minority in this culture, and how we live, and how we think, and how we worship, then we have to be really creative. We have to be really intentional. And the definition that we're using to talk about what it looks like to be a creative minority is this. A community of followers of Jesus Seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and apply them to the soil of a post-Christian world. I love that because it's seeking to rediscover, right? Rediscover the teachings of Jesus and apply them to our world. And I would argue that there's no closer parallel than that of Israel in exile. Israel in exile. Now, Daniel... The book of Daniel is gonna be our guide over the next uh, number of weeks. And um, it breaks into two halves. If you've read Daniel before, there's like this story narrative had half, like the first half, and then there's this weird second half, right? So the first half is the stories of these four guys in exile. The second half are pointers to the future. And, and most of our time, to be honest with you, is going to be spent in the first half. And what we're going to do is in Daniel chapter one, we're going to kind of read through some of this. And today we're going to be talking about the strategy of Babylon to shape Daniel and his friends. Take a look at this. In the third year of the, king, uh, the reign of, of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and that's the southern part of Israel, we'll get to that here in a second. Um, The kingdom was divided. The southern part was Judah. The northern part was Israel. Israel was taken off into exile by the Assyrians 150 years before this, okay? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, okay? So I'm going to show you a map, um, and I have a laser pointer. (laughs) Laser pointer Sunday. I'm not moving. Laser Pointer Sunday. Okay, so Jerusalem down here, see that? Um, Nineveh is Assyria, okay? So the Assyrians were, this is the Assyrian Empire up here, okay? Now, what happened is that during this time, there were three major empires. There was Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt, way down here behind the keyboard, um, so Babylon, there was a whole lot of upheaval. Ba- Babylon conquers Syria, okay? They conquer Syria, but then they want to get to Egypt. But to get to Egypt, they have to go through Judah, okay? So that just gives you a picture of what's happening. The, the northern tribes of Israel are, are, are already assimilated into Assyrian culture at that point. Okay, so that's a little that's happening. It says in verse two, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Um, You know, the phrase the Lord delivered. Um, Here's the thing. God called the people of Israel his covenant people. They were to be a light of the world. They turn to idolatry and idolatry's twin sister, which is injustice, and, and, and hundreds, hundreds of years of warning after warning, uh, stop, come back to me. Uh, finally, God says, enough is enough, and he takes his hand of protection away from the people of Judah, and they are dragged off into exile. Now, before we move on, let's talk really quick about Babylon. Babylon, at this time, they just crushed the Assyrians, they are the zenith, okay, of of civilization at the moment in time. Largest city in the known world was Babylon, 2,500 acres across. Walls were 80 feet thick. There were two separate uh, groupings of walls. Some of the walls and some of the places of the city were 300 feet high. And it was a huge city, now, there was a gate named after one of the Babylonian gods, um, and we have a picture of it. It's actually an artistic rendering of it. It's called the Ishtar Gate, and um, this is, this is a, a rendering. It's an artist drawing, but this is uh, what scholars believe most looked like the Ishtar Gate at the time, and it was just opulent city. It was It was big. Uh, all over the Ishtar Gate were images of the goddess of war, uh, love and war, actually, um, which if you're married, you know that's the same thing. Um, and notice how it's decorated. It's opulent. It's wealthy. Um, and in the middle of the city, there's a stunning tower, huge tower. Um, and it's called, in Akkadian, it's called the House of of the foundations of heaven and earth. Does that sound familiar to anything in Genesis? It was a skyscraper in their time. The Greek historian Herodotus said Babylon was far surpassed, far surpassed any other city in the known world. Now, all through the all through the Bible, all through scripture, Babylon is talked about. Um And we start early on in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, this idea, um, this iconic line that comes from Genesis 11, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heaven so that we we may make a name for ourselves. Um, That comes out of Genesis 11. The driving ambition of Babylon was to build a society apart from God, Um, and this motif runs all through scripture, this idea of open rebellion to God. Um, and and Babylon actually runs all through scripture. In fact, at the end of scripture, three three chapters in Revelation are devoted to Babylon. Not as a nation state, but if you read Revelation and you kind of unpack some of that, it's actually about a global economy. It's, a, it's about something so strong and so... Um, uh, I guess it's just pushing everything forward. Uh, a huge military, uh, wealth, opulence, uh, the dominant economy. And then along with that, okay, comes injustice and slavery and people on the margins. Does any of that sound familiar? Like, not to make everybody angry right off the bat, but we live in the largest economy. In the history of the world, we throw away more trash bags in America than some countries do trash. I mean, we have so much here. We are the driving engine of the global economy. And and, and the question I would ask you is, who is Babylon now? It's us. It's the West. It's America. And that might be like, you might be thinking, well, Ryan, are you just bagging on in America? Like, we just live. We just can't, you can't shake it. We have the strongest military, the most wealth, the biggest economy in the history of the world. And we're, we're reading, sometimes we read scripture and go, Babylon, they're bad. <laughs> right? And so I'm not trying to make you mad. I'm just trying to reorient our, our heads. Uh, last year, uh, year before last, we did a series on money. Most times when churches do a series on money, they usually, it's about giving. And we didn't do that. We decided to talk about just money and how money has this inertia in our lives, right? It pulls us and it causes us to do things just out of default that we wouldn't never think about doing. That is because we are a part of something way bigger. We are just, I mean, advertisers are like plunging into our kids' heads from as early as three years old. Buy this, spend this, you know? So it's just part of our culture. Back to chapter uh, one, verse two, it says this, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, These he carried off to the temple of his god in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his god. Fascinating line here. um, That this was just really common practice. That if you if you took over another nation, you took all their worship items and put them into the belly of your god. Right. So imagine how gut wrenching this would have been for Daniel. Like ripped from home, ripped from temple, ripped from all this stuff, and he sees the artifacts being carried off to Babylon. Not only was his nation defeated, but in some sense, his God was defeated. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the, uh, the court officials, to bring in the king's service, some of the Israelites of the royal family. I want you to notice that was some of the Israelites, okay? So smart, we're not gonna go into all this. We, we read this last week too, smart, Good-looking, handsome, uh, and, you know, all the, all the full meal deal, really, of young men. Like the best of the best. And then we read this. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the book of Daniel has this story. This is the story of some of the Jewish men. Not all of them, some of them. It says that among those were chosen, Daniel and his friends right so we know there was more but this story concentrates on these four dudes right four in particular and they were all renamed babylonian names we'll get into that in a second but verse 8 this is the key line and this is the key line for the for many things in the book but daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So in ancient Near East culture, particularly in Jewish culture, your diet was your culture. It was a marker for not only your culture, but your spiritual identity. Which God you worshipped. It's why when you travel to India, you don't order a steak. If you need someone to explain that to you, Wikipedia that. There's just certain things that identify what you worship and what you don't worship. Okay? So he asked permission. Verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion on Daniel. I think this is really important. Because we just went through this idea that God uh, was defeated by the Babylonian God, right? In battle. And all the artifacts of the temple were carried off. The temple was destroyed, and yet God's still here. Where is God? God is in Babylon. He is in exile with Daniel and his friends. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. He's like, Daniel, just have a hamburger and, and just be the king's man, okay? Just do it. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with the, that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So this is an ancient controlled experiment right here in the book of Daniel. So he agreed to do this and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. And all the vegans in the room said what? <laughs> Duh. Duh. Right? Like, right. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were, they were, uh, they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, I hate to break it to you, but this isn't a Christian weight loss plan. Okay? <laughs> I hate to burst your your Christian bubble. <laughs> but I mean, duh, like if you just eat vegetables and don't drink alcohol, you're probably gonna lose a few pounds that you gained at Christmas. Okay, that's not a shocker. Um, I don't think it takes science for us to, to know that. I think what, what's happening here is is far bigger than just losing weight in a Christian way. Now, there's a lot of debate and controversy here. Most likely, the meat from the king's table This was a season, okay, this was a particular season in the time of the Babylonian calendar where the meat from the king's table was actually meat sacrificed to idols. And by taking on this, taking in this meat, there was something in Daniel that says, I will not do that, that is breaking the food laws of Torah. And I'm trusting that by not eating that, that God will sustain me because God has given us favor. To these four men, God gave knowledge, verse 17, and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. This is so fascinating. All kinds of literature and learning. Do you think it had anything to do with their upbringing or the Torah or anything like that? No, no. This was all kinds of wisdom and literature and learning, not just the fact that Daniel is smart. Okay, we know that Daniel's smart. We know he's hardworking. We know he's self-disciplined. We know he's handsome, all those things. But God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge in that moment into his context, meaning into his language that he's learning, into the literature of the Babylonians and, and this, the God gave knowledge into this pagan spiritual culture. God gave gave him knowledge into all of that, which is absolutely fascinating, right? That doesn't sound like separatism. That actually sounds like God is actually using Daniel's location, using the language and the culture around him to actually give Daniel wisdom. Verse 18, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom, listen to this, and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians Harry Potter, and enchanters, right, in his whole kingdom. So Daniel and his three buddies are actually so well-versed in Babylonian culture and lore and literature and religion and dreams and magic and all this other stuff, the king actually found them 10 times better than his own people. So they essentially graduate summa cum laude of, Babylonian, of the Babylonian immersion program. It's pretty amazing. And here's the closing line. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Here's the thing. We just think, oh, a couple years later. No, that's six decades later. So the beginning and end of Daniel in the year of Jehoiakim and at the end of it, The first year of King Cyrus, 60 decades. His whole adult life is serving the king of Babylon. His entire life. That's just a fast forward, right? At the end, that last line. Daniel's story will show us how to live and survive and thrive in a foreign place. Daniel's heart is a citizen to the kingdom of God. Daniel's body is in a foreign land. The question that we're asking ourselves is, what does this mean for us? How does this work out for us? I'm gonna throw that uh, that quote from Creative Minority back up on the screen. A community of followers of Jesus seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church, and apply them to the soil of a post-Christian world. To fight off syncretism is to not be influenced by the culture, but that's not enough. We actually have to fight off separatism, which is finding out how we can influence the culture. Does that make sense? How we can participate in the culture in a way that doesn't get influenced by the culture. Does that sound tricky? Yeah, it's real tricky. You know what it's going to take? It's going to take a community. It's going to take a lot of different things. We're going to get into that here. This week, the strategy to influence Daniel, okay, was a fourfold strategy. Babylon's strategy to influence Daniel was the exact same strategy that we experience our world putting on us. It's the exact same strategy. The first thing they did was they isolated Daniel. Verse 4, Daniel is isolated. He's taken from his parents, from his temple, from his family, his home. He's young. He's impressionable. Um, The social glue that he had uh, was ripped from him, and a new social glue was given to him. This is why so many kids who go off to college, and they're away from family and friends and people they know them, they can begin to create a new kind of persona sometimes and, and, and really change. This is why business trips and, and Vegas, you know, like you know, what, what happens in stays, Vegas stays in Vegas, this whole idea of like when you're away from your social glue, when you're away from the people of God, you get isolated. It's part of the part of the program. You're going to make it in exile. You got to do life with people. You got to do life together. You got to wrestle with this stuff together. You got to talk about it. You got to be intentional. Um, Second thing they did was enculturation. Verse five, they are enculturated. This was more than just learning Akkadian. This was giving them, like I said, knowledge of Babylon, they wanted to make Daniel Babylonian. They wanted to make him one of theirs. And the best of the, you know, the king's culture, the best of the Babylonian culture is around the king's table. Most likely those meals had female companionship involved. And they were appealing to Daniel's appetites and his ambitions and, and our culture does this in a, in a soft way, the idea of being true to yourself. Things like that we hear from our culture. Here's how we do it here. Here's, here's what Denver's like. You know, Babylonians were giving him the vision. This is the vision of the good life. This is, this is Babylon. It's enticing. But Daniel lived out an alternative story, one that one that he got from Scripture. Remember, we talked about Jeremiah and Jeremiah's letter to to those who were taken into captivity. We believe that Jeremiah's letter was foundational to how Daniel survived, how Daniel kept true, that Daniel actually has a regular reading of Scripture. And, and, And there's a different narrative that Daniel's living off of right? The third one is integration. Daniel didn't get the luxury of hiding out in suburbia. You know, he didn't get the luxury of, of pulling away. He was right there under the king's roof in the, in the king's university at the king's table. He was right there. And we will see that Daniel builds his life around practices we will see a little later on that he actually practices something called fixed hour prayer in his life. Three times a day, Daniel is praying. We'll see that down the road. He fasts. He he does things that we call spiritual disciplines. He does those in his life to stay true to who he is and to who his God is. Uh, Scholars call this the idea of of leaving and returning, meaning in those moments, Daniel is actually leaving exile and being with his God and then returning as he's physically in exile. I would argue that one of the most important things we can do is to lean into the practices of Jesus in exile. Scripture reading, fasting, weekly meals with your community, prayer, fixed hour prayer, all these different things to practice, these are actually an act of open rebellion towards the empire that we live in. That's how we leave and return. We leave exile in the moment and commune with our God and return to influence it. It's actually counterformation. See, like I told, we were talking about this last fall, we're all being formed. You are being spiritually formed every day the, the moment you wake up. You turn your phone on. You turn on the radio, the news, whatever. You're being formed. You go shopping. You're being formed. We're being formed all the time. The question is by what or who? So this is an act of counter-formation against the formation machine that Daniel was experiencing in Babylon. And the final thing was this, identification. In verse six, Daniel is renamed. Now, this is really tricky for us because for us, names are just um, like, they're not as big of a deal as, as they were in uh, the Old Testament. I mean, for us, it's about getting a coffee order or signing up for a class or whatever. For them, your name was your identity. It was your destiny. It was prophetic. It meant something. Your name was a one-word moniker for for the truest thing about you. And so this is the interesting part. Listen, look at, look, look at this quote right here. I'm gonna show you this quote. This is a, a scholar. He said this, in the world of the Hebrew scriptures, a personal name was often thought to communicate something essential about the bearer's identity, birth order, circumstance, or divine purpose that the bearer was intended to f- fulfill, Right? Another writer writes this, names are revelatory about the nature of a person. Yeah. My name is means untilled pasture lands. That's what it means. I don't care, really. I mean, it's just a name, right? For them, it was destiny. So all four of these guys are renamed. They're re-identified. This is so fascinating. You're going to love this. Total This is a total M. Night Shyamalan twist, okay? By the way, has anybody seen Glass yet? Nobody? Good. Yeah, you passed the culture test. Okay, here we go. All four, oh, actually, this isn't on the screen. All four guys are renamed. Daniel, his name actually means in Hebrew, Yahweh is my judge. Sorry, Yahweh is my judge. He's renamed Baltasar. I'm, I'm horrible with these, which is treasurer or protector of Bel. Bel was another name of Marduk, their actual uh, god in Babylon. So he's renamed treasurer or protector of Marduk. Hananiah, his name means Yahweh shows grace. He is named renamed Shadrach under the command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael, he kind of gets the shaft here. His name, His name was who is like Yahweh. And he gets renamed who is like Aku, the moon god. Azariah is Yahweh is my helper. He is renamed Abednego, servant of Nu, which is another Babylonian god. See what's going on here? They're being re-identified. This is actually a deeply oppressive move to replace their God-given Hebrew identity with a pagan Babylonian identity. Okay? But this was... This is really awesome. This is something I literally just learned last week. It was a total failure. The strategy was a total failure because Daniel, he's rooted in God. He stays rooted in God. And notice what, you'll notice what happens in the rest of Daniel. Daniel never calls himself Balteshazzar, he never calls himself that name. He always calls himself Daniel. And the writer, and we don't know if it was Daniel or not, but the writer, this is the best part. And scholars have been confused about this for years. The writers consistently misspell all four names. And it's no joke. We used to think it was like this textual problem, right? Like this Old Testament, like, ah, there's problems in the Bible. You know how people tell you that. There's misspelling. You can't trust it. Actually, this was on purpose. Our oldest manuscripts of Daniel actually have this, that the writer chose to spell the names differently each time. Almost like a who cares, whatever, you know, kind of an idea. I just think that's hilarious. I think that's like so punk rock. (laughs) I just think that's such a like a a finger to the man right there. I mean, you know what I mean. So you have isolation, enculturation, integration, identification. This was the scheme of the Babylonians to make Daniel and his friends Babylonian. What Babylon does, Denver does. It's really, really, really clear to me. Now, if you're reading this story for the first time and you get to verse 7, and you hear all this, the renaming and all this, the immersion program, everything like that, you go, man, these boys don't have a chance. These boys don't have a chance, right? And then you get to verse eight, and it says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He resolved. Somehow this teenage boy found the courage to stare down Babylon eye to eye, And refuse to compromise. And that's what the story is about. The temptation to assimilate, the temptation to compromise. And here's the thing we live in a city, in a time where the pressure to conform the, to the tyranny majority opinion is huge. And there's pressure to give in, there's pressure to compromise. There's pressure to just let it let something slide and assimilate, and this is the issue. This is the problem. This is the thing we face. We wrestle with this all the time. See, there's a pattern. It usually doesn't start off like rampant day one, but we start to slide a bit. You know, we start to slide a little bit in theology, or or maybe in a little bit morally, and we drift away, and we start. Watching shows we didn't used to watch, or we started, you know, maybe hanging out and doing more. Maybe we started like instead of having one drink, we start having two or three. We just start to slide a bit. We just start to just see this uh, pattern beginning in our lives. And here's the deal: I love Denver, but Denver is hard to say no to. The West, especially in America, is hard to say no to. There's just. Just freedom in your lifestyle—very individualistic, highly consumeristic, highly uh, mobile. You know, not being pinned down. Remember, we talked about hard, soft, uh, hard, and soft power. Hard power would be something like ISIS. You know, on like a bad end, um, or a good thing like on uh, like a police. You know, like a police department or a police. Uh, Commands from a police officer—that's it's a good thing because it's it's safety, you know. But that that idea. But then there's soft power. Soft power would be like, you want to just have another Moscow mule? You want to maybe let's let's just go to brunch, right? Let's um, let's go for that home in the mountains. Let's like let's let's do that. Let's go for that. Let's, let's put in 75, 80 hours a week and just let's do that. That's soft power. And it's lethal, lethal because it's kind of unassuming, right? It's like so like subtle and we can become numb and even apathetic to some things and it happened, it happened then, it happens to us now. Small incremental decisions but end up having a life long, long long-term effect on us, right? See, sin has this way of numbing us. It has this way of, it's kind of like an antiseptic to the soul. And it has a a cumulative effect on us, right? I just wanna pause here. And if there's something that pops into your heart or mind, some little bit, some like area of compromise in your life, whether it be like escape or, the next experience or seeking the good life from our city, the next possession. You know, maybe there's some area in your life that you go, man, that's, that's an area of compromise for me. My point is not to make you feel guilty. My point is that it's all about formation. And that didn't just start one day. That, that, that was formed in us and for Daniel, he managed after three years of immersion to stay true to his identity and rooted in the story of Yahweh. Now, as we get towards the end here, the idea of holiness in scripture, like when you and I hear the word holiness, are pretty good that we may hear that through the lens of some fundamentalist preacher somewhere. Who, is, who rails on your behavior and whatever, and, and you've got to be holy. And, and, you know, that's all partially true, this idea of, of, of behaving differently and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately what holiness is, holiness is, the best way for me to describe it is the story of holiness, narrative holiness all throughout scripture that one of the primary ways that Daniel survives and thrives in exile is his identity. In his identity, Daniel has formed his identity around how he fits into the story of God. Does that make sense? Daniel didn't walk into exile with a list of rules and go, I can't do this, I can't do that, you know, and... His actual identity was formed inside the story of God. Holiness is about identity formation in us. Meaning, identity formation in the people of God is the primary way that we survive and thrive in exile at a foundational benchmark level. For us, for the church, a core tenet of our identity is is that our understanding is that we're called to represent Christ in the world, right? That's like a core part of how we see our identity. And in all of our imperfections, right, we're called to somehow demonstrate the life of Jesus in the world. Listen to this quote by Lee Beach. Uh, This is that book we've been kind of playing around with. He says, narrative holiness is guided by the idea that we are called to live by our story, not a set of rules, to live according to a narrative that orients us in a way that runs in harmony with the story of God, but may often run counter to the narrative of our culture. Meaning our, 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 our goal in holiness is actually to root ourselves in God's story. Meaning you can read scripture one of two ways. You can read scripture as an external to you, right? It's external out there. It's somebody else's story. And we're not really actually a part of it, but it gives us advice, right? We're just trying to learn from it. Or you can read story as something you are to immerse your life into. Meaning we can enter it as those who are heirs of the tradition of all these people who have walked before us, attempting to faithfully perpetuate the story, right? Not just learn like, well, that's not good. That's good. Um, I'm not supposed to do these things, but I'm supposed to do these things. Most going to church with that idea. He's going to tell me what I'm not to do. And they're going to tell me. They're going to make me feel guilty for what I should do, right? That's reading scripture externally. Reading it as if you were immersed in it means that you are faithfully attempting to perpetuate it. And that's what Daniel did. Listen to this final quote from Lee Beach. He says, put another way, narrative holiness, listen to this, thinks about holiness as continuing to write God's story. It is an attempt to conscien- conscientiously participate in the ongoing expression of God's life in the world. This makes holiness deeply relational, as it is an outflow of our connection to God and is ultimately expressed in our connections with one another. I love that. So, a lot of times when we hear the word holiness, we think, oh, good and bad and, and sin and all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's so much bigger that we get to be a part of what God's doing. And that changes our motivation, right? Totally changes it. From the idea of obeying God or the Bible or something way bigger, it's, it's just something way bigger and better. Holiness is immersing our lives into the life of God and seeking to express that life faithfully. Holiness is the art of faithfully living out God's ongoing story in new times, in in new contexts, it's living a life of engaged nonconformity. We're engaged, but we're not conforming. Daniel, six decades, makes it through exile. He helped the people, makes it through exile. And here's the thing. I tend to err on the side of freedom in my life than holiness. I tend to err on, you know, Freedom And and, and what Daniel's showing me is you've got to lean into holiness. I mean, there's going to be a moment in my future, Scripture tells me, in my future when I am in the presence of God and I'm overcome by God's love and God's holiness, and there's going to be things going in my mind. I'm going to be like, what was I thinking? Why did I spend so much time with that? Why did I trade the presence of God for that? So wasn't worth it. Nothing is worth the cost of the presence of God. And our desire as a church, my desire is to follow in the footsteps of Daniel's example. What does it look like to make it through exile and change the world in the meantime? What does it look like? Because a continuing theme for Israel all throughout scripture is to be a people of God and that they would return to the Lord, to seek his face with all their hearts, to be transformed by the power of his spirit. The promise of God gives us, the promise of God gives us what we need to find when we seek God. Jeremiah says this at the end. This is that piece we read last week, Jeremiah 29, right after the graduation verse. He says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. See, in our hearts, we find both the presence of sin that gives life to sinful behaviors and all that kind of stuff in our lives, in this tendency towards selfishness that makes us really incapable of loving others the way that we're called to. If we're honest, we find that in our hearts. And if we're a, if we're to survive exile, we need to radically convert. We need to radically change our hearts. All the things that we love and all the things that we long for, okay and ask the question are those things that are formed in us by babylon or are those things good that are formed in us are those things are those things formed on us from god and so we're going to come to the table it might be a time of, of repentance for you for me as we as we ask the question where are we where am i compromising Where have I been formed and shaped into Denver? Where have I been formed and shaped into a consumer or any of those things? Let me pray. God, you're so good to us.